Mojave Beach Productions. Mojave Beach Productions and the Voice of Halana bring you stories of faith and inspiration, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International. Mojave Beach Productions and The Voice of Helona present Dear Dean, Love, Mom, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International and narrated by Esther Luttrell. Episode 4 I edited other people's screenplays, did script consulting and some writing for a couple of production companies, but my mind never strayed far from Dean. I was very concerned about the people who'd come to me through him. What was I supposed to do with them? Television had begun to shy away from what they call disease of the week movies, and death would fall in the disease category. Studios weren't likely to fall over themselves, wanting to produce films about deceased young males or a departed grandma. I was racked with guilt. I said once aloud, What, Dean? What do you think I'm going to do with all these stories? When would I find time to write them, even if I could figure out who would buy them? I received an invitation to conduct a three-day screenwriting workshop at a writer's conference in another state, and I happily accepted. It happened to be a state I'd never visited before, <laughs> not even as a kid. If I had any qualms at all about it, it was that I would be giving a solo performance. Donald hadn't been invited. A couple of days prior to departure, I got another familiar-sounding phone call. It originated in the state where I would soon be giving the workshop. Hello, came a soft southern lilt from the other end of the line. I know you're going to think I'm crazy. Why does everybody assume I'm going to think they're crazy? But actually, I'm an attorney, and I'm quite sane. I assured her that I could hear the sanity in her voice. The funniest, well, strangest thing happened to me yesterday morning. I was visiting a friend who happened to have a New York Sunday paper. Now, it's odd enough that he would have a Sunday paper from New York, since we don't live anywhere near there. Anyway, it's thick, you know, a really big paper. I was browsing through it when I saw a square up in a corner of a page that listed all of the workshops coming to that area. I didn't really read it. I mean, after all, like I say, I don't live anywhere near New York, but I saw it. There must have been, I don't know, maybe 300 names listed, one after the other. All of a sudden, one of those names jumped off the page at me. It was actually three-dimensional. At the same time, I felt a shock go through my body. I gave a little yelp, and I dropped the paper on the floor. My friend asked me what happened, and I told him. I picked up the paper again, and I looked at the name that had popped out at me, and it was yours. It had your phone number, too, so... I felt like I had to call you to find out why I'd have a reaction like that. 
The whole thing had to have originated with Dean, of course. I wasn't giving a workshop in New York State. There would be no reason for my name to be in a New York paper. Not only that, it turns out that my name was misspelled. But the phone number was accurate. Wording it carefully, as I was learning to do, I said, I've had a couple of calls like this recently. They always seem to be from someone who's lost a loved one, a son, a young son. Is it possible that... I didn't get any further because she was making sounds of shock and surprise. My brother, she managed to say, he just died. So there we have it, I thought. Dean at work. Her brother, she told me, was in his early 20s. He'd been on the roof of his parents' barn removing limbs that had fallen on it in a storm. She said that he called down to his dad to toss up a rake. Now, even though there were no electrical wires anywhere near the tin roof, there was a stand of trees that went from the barn roof to power lines some distance away. A surge of electricity ran from the lines to the roof following a path of wet, overlapping branches. The dampness on the roof, combined with the rake's metal handle, caused an electric charge that sent the young man crashing to his death. Before our conversation ended, I, I learned that even though she had never taken a class in screenwriting, she had just completed an effort at a script based on her first law case. She'd won in court, but not without her health and her relationship with her fiancé suffering enormously. The story revolved around an abused child she had represented. As a result of the young attorney's hard work, an important state law pertaining to abused children had been changed. I met her when I went to the conference to give my workshop. I even edited her script for her, though to my knowledge it was never picked up by a studio. Later in the day, after her phone call, I saw in my mind a scenario of what I believe happened in heaven or wherever Dean and the young lawyer's brother met. Dean says, Hi, my name's Dean, he offers his hand. You're new here, aren't you? Lawyer's brother, Hi, yeah, my name's, and he would have said his name. Dean, Glad to know you. Be glad to show you around. The lawyer's brother interrupts. It's my sister I'm worried about. She's taking it pretty hard. Dean, looking down on the young woman, sobbing. She's been trying to write a screenplay, hadn't she? Lawyer's brother. Yeah, how'd you know? Now, I have no idea if he told him how he knew, but I'm pretty sure he said something like, Well, Mom could help her. She edits people's scripts and gives screenwriting workshop. Why don't we get them together? Lawyer's brother. I'd be really good, but how do we do something like that? And then Dean does his magic, or whatever it's called. I was thinking that maybe his job, whatever it is, maybe to teach newcomers how to do it too. It was at that conference I also met Kitty Ligorio, an award-winning author of children's books. Although we emailed often after I returned, and although she heard me say in the workshop that I was there working with writing hopefuls in memory of my son Dean who had died, she never shared her own story with me until some years later. In 2002, I sent out correspondence to all of those I'd met as a result of my workshops, asking if they had a story to share appropriate to this book. This is the email I received from Kitty. Well, Esther, you know, were my son Eon alive, he would be 31 years old now. I met you at, and she named the state, 
conference. I talked my friend and daughter into going with me. It was the only time I've gone to that state, and I haven't been back. I have come to see God as something very different than when I was a child. I no longer see God the Father, but rather just God. And I know there are layers. I know that writing takes me between layers. I know that when I wrote my Johnston Flood novel, I sat at my computer every day and I wept, and my hands listened while my soul wailed, the children, the children, so many children. And whomever it was who spoke to me the first time I went into the Flood Museum screamed in my mind, make them remember. I do think Jesus understood the layers. I think he wanted us to be kind to one another and live in peace. I cannot call myself a Christian anymore because there are too many who do, and they demand the death of others. It's absurd we have a missile called the peacekeeper. What strange times these are. But of course, time isn't linear. It's spiraling. Think of the symbol for infinity. Well, my goodness, what did you tap into? I sound like a wacko nutcase or something. Whatever you want of me, I will try to help. Kitty. I had no idea Kitty had lost a son. She never told me. But Dean knew, and once again he had put two moms together. Kitty would later read and encourage me to find a publisher for my first novel, Murder in the Movies. It was released the following year by Port Town Publishing as a paperback, and in 2008, Hilliard and Harris picked up hardback rights. I wasn't even sure I had anything anyone would want to publish, let alone buy, until Kitty convinced me. So this time, the tables were turned. I was the one in need of help. Thanks, Dino. It seems to me there's no place more beautiful than the East Coast in autumn. I got out the atlas and ran my finger along the U.S. map, searching for a place I thought might be perfect for our October workshop. When I got to Massachusetts, I felt a dip in my stomach. I have a theory about dips in stomachs. God loves dolphins, and he loves whales. That's why he equipped them with a sonar that tells them when there's an underwater mountain lurking ahead. They get a sonar beep, and they veer to the left or to the right, thus avoiding calamity. Now, I contend that God loves us just as much as he loves dolphins and whales. That's why he equipped us with what I call God sonar. It's that little feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you know something's right, or that feeling of dread when you know something's wrong. Unlike the wise dolphin and whale, however, we humans counter our God sonar and apply what we like to call reason. We argue with our feelings. Hey, we ain't no stinking fish, we say, squaring our shoulders. Don't nobody have to tell me what to do. I know what's right for me and what isn't. So, we ignore our God sonar, and we go crashing into the underwater mountains. Splat! How many times have we done something against every instinct that said to hold back? How many times have we said afterward, Dang, I knew better than do that. My God sonar was telling me that Massachusetts would be the place for our next workshop. We ended up in beautiful Concord on the last weekend of foliage. 
I called our event Midnight Oil Writers Workshop. Our brochures indicated that we would start at 12 midnight sharp, leaving time during the day for visits to the homes of Louisa May Alcott and Ralph Waldo Emerson and on to Walden Pond. If students timed it right, they could even get in a trip to those writers' graves on Authors Ridge in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, only a few minutes' walk from the old parish town hall we would be using on Monument Square. It was spacious enough to hold the 101 aspiring screenwriters who had registered. Among those attending was the creator of the PBS classic Nova, Harvard screenwriting professor, the director of Harvard Square Screenwriters, and a Hollywood producer whose path would cross mine a few months later when he made an offer on one of my screenplays. Donald was due to fly in late Friday night. I had invited Anne-Marie Gillen to join us. As I mentioned earlier, Annie had exec-produced one of my favorite movies, Fried Green Tomatoes. In addition, she'd been an invaluable asset in putting together deals for Hoosiers and The Last Emperor. At the time of our workshop, she was a senior officer on Morgan Freeman's production company, Revelations Entertainment. I knew Annie had information that would be invaluable to aspiring screenwriters and potential filmmakers. I arrived two days ahead of the others and was met at the Boston airport by a young local fellow who had volunteered to be my assistant. I stopped in town long enough to give a talk before an East Coast media group. Then we headed 20 miles west to a historic bed and breakfast farmhouse where our little troop would be staying. When the innkeeper answered the door, my assistant pulled away with a promise to pick me up early the next morning. Registering, I apologized for the late hour. Don't think a thing about it, my hostess said amiably. If you'll come with me, I'll show you your room. I followed her outside where we went down a narrow, winding walk to a distant wing. The place was dark and very quiet. You'll be the only guest for a bit, she said, stopping to unlock a door. Here we go. Just up these stairs. Follow me. The stairs creaked heavily underfoot. At the top was a well-lit, spacious area off of which were several closed doors. I'd put you in the Victorian room, she said, but we have a lady who reserves it this time every year, and she's due to arrive tomorrow. Not sure just when. Would you like to see it? We had moved past one door to another further along the same wall to my right. Obviously proud of the quaint accommodations, she fairly beamed as she unlocked the door and stepped aside to let me peek in. It was an airy corner room with a lot of windows framed by sheer white Priscilla curtains, a truly beautiful place filled with white wicker, romantic floral prints and greens and rose, and a ton of lovely old lace. I can see why she wants this room, I said appreciatively. Closing the door behind us, she turned back to the first door we had passed at the head of the stairs. Indicating a short hall across the way, she said, Except for the Victorian room and the one you'll be occupying, everybody else has to share a bath. It's over there. Of course, like I say, you'll have the place to yourself tonight and probably most of tomorrow. Opening the door to the room I would be staying in, she reached inside to flip a switch that turned on an overhead light. It's not as fancy as the Victorian, but it's clean. I think you'll be comfortable. Twin beds were in front of me, with a window in the facing wall. It lacked romance, but, like the lady said, it was clean, and it was wonderfully cozy. There was a small writing table, a straight-back chair, a Tiffany-style floor lamp with a smaller version of it on an antique table between the beds. A door on the far side of them was open. I assumed that would be the bath. 
No need to close the shades, she said from the threshold. There's nothing around except an old farmhouse across the field, but the family's gone for a couple of weeks. Is there a phone, I asked. Not in here, but you're welcome to use the one in the dining room. Did you want to make a call tonight? I told her that I didn't, but that I may need to in the morning. Well, the main building is the one you were in when you arrived. This part was added more recently. Now, to get to the dining room, you'll have to go outside the way we came in. Then just follow the walk. The place is locked up for the night, but I'm in there around 7 to start breakfast. Taking in the quality of wallpaper, uh, obviously a replica of decor from another era, I said, there must be quite a lot of history around here. Oh my goodness, yes. My great-grandfather came to Concord to build most of the old stone bridges you'll be seeing while you're here. This was his farmhouse. At that time, it only consisted of the center building. Later, as the family grew and more space was needed, wings were added. My husband and I have just, we've done quite a bit of renovation since we took over. Oh, it's a slow process. It was his idea to build on a couple more wings with their own entrances and exits. We live out back in what used to be the carriage house. She stepped into the hall. There's soap and fresh linen in the bathroom. Let me know if you need more. Breakfast is from 8 till 9.30. Nothing fancy. We don't have a license to serve hot meals, so it's mainly cold cereal, toast, muffins, fruit, cheeses, you know, that sort of thing. I think you'll find it filling enough. After I thanked her, she closed the door. As I set my carry-on luggage, it's all I ever travel with, no matter how long or how short the trip, in the closet, I heard her footsteps creak down the staircase. With the closing of the main door downstairs, it hit me how alone I really was. Yet I wasn't in the least afraid. I washed my face, changed into my night clothes, turned down the bed closest to the window, snapped off the overhead light, clicked on the bedside lamp. Then I took a book with me and slipped under the fat, fluffy comforter. Tired as I was from the trip and the talk I'd given in Boston, it wasn't long before my eyelids drooped. I managed to snap off the lamp before falling into an uncharacteristically deep sleep. I don't know how much time passed before I awoke with a start. Something had hit the door like a football player smashing it with a body blow. Oh, my heart leaped, but only for a moment. I don't panic easily. I sat up trying to find a rational reason for a sound like that. I decided that if the lady who was expected to occupy the Victorian room next to me had arrived earlier than expected, she could have been coming up the stairs, trying to be quiet so as not to disturb any guests who might be in the wing. Perhaps she was heisting a heavy suitcase, one step at a time ahead of her. Maybe she got almost to the top when she lost her grip, and the luggage banged against my door before she could stop it. Well, taking that line of thought a bit further, I knew that I should be hearing her footsteps creak across the wooden floor as she headed toward her room. Then I'd hear a key rattle in the lock, followed by the click of a light switch, then noises associated with someone getting settled on the other side of the wall. I remembered that a bathroom in the Victorian suite shared a common wall with my own bath. I'd probably hear water run in a moment, maybe a toilet flush. Convinced that was the logic behind the wallop on my door, I listened, but I heard no sound at all. It was quiet too quiet. Oh, right now, I said to myself, let's think this through. Accepting that it wasn't the lady guest, there had to be another answer, a burglar. 
He came in through the downstairs door, slipped quietly up the steps, and slammed his shoulder to my door, expecting it to burst open, but it didn't. He knows he must have awakened me, so he's standing stock still on the other side of that door, waiting to see what I'm going to do. I sneaked out of bed and tiptoed to the door where I lay down on my stomach. There was a space of oh, at least two inches between the floor and the bottom of the door. If the burglar theory was correct, I should be nose to toes with the culprit. What I'd do if I saw a bad guy sneakers facing me was a puzzle. I had no idea. But it was a moot point. There were no shoes and there were no toes out there. I could see all the way across the wooden floor to the short hall where the common bathroom was located. I lay there with my cheek pressed to the floor, deciding my next move. Judging from the sound I had heard, if it wasn't the lady guest's oversized luggage, then whoever it was had to be a big guy, a person with a lot of strength. Now he'd make a heck of a racket, even tiptoeing back down the steps. And yet I didn't hear him. So where the blazes was he? I told myself the good news was that the door hadn't popped open. That meant the dead boat held. I very quietly got to my feet to touch the lock and got the shock of my life. The door was open about an inch. The dead boat was exposed, jutting out from the side of the door. Well, I grabbed my chest in a Betty Davis gesture that could have won me an Oscar as seen by the right Hollywood folks. Oh my God, I gasped under my breath. My heartbeat thundered in my ears. Screwing up every ounce of courage I could muster, I clicked the deadbolt back so that I could close the door and slide the lock in place. Then I leaned against the door trying to catch my breath. No sound came from the hallway. I pushed the twin beds together, jamming the first one tight against the door. Then, feeling secure again, I crawled back into bed and pulled the covers up under my chin. But I didn't turn out the light. The next morning in the dining room, I'd fixed myself a cup of hot tea and taken two slices of raisin toast out of a toaster on a sideboard when a young woman came in with a mug of something hot. She took a chair at the table across from me. Ah, I see Mom's got you in my old room, she said with a big welcoming smile. Oh, deduction. This was my host daughter. I judged her to be in her mid-twenties. I spent my teen years there, she nodded. If you hear anything go bump in the night, don't get scared, she said, sipping her drink. I decided to hold off telling her my story until I heard hers. The place is haunted, she continued. Don't know if Mom told you that or not. All the time I was in that room, there was a ghost who would slam himself against my door every now and then, always at night, and he'd hit it so hard it actually popped the deadbolt and jar jarred the door open. I did another curious, oh? Oh, he's not dangerous or anything. Never does any harm. In fact, all he ever does is bang the door, and then he only does it on that one door. No place else. What do you think he wants? She shrugged. Beats me. One time, when my folks and I were on vacation, the people in the next farmhouse said they saw a lantern in my window and the silhouette of a man in the room. They thought somebody had broken in, so the husband came over with his shotgun, but the place was locked up. We'd left him a key in case of an emergency, so he went upstairs to investigate. He didn't find a thing. 
She smiled reassuringly. <laughs> Don't worry. Mr. Ghost hasn't been around in ages, and he probably won't make an appearance while you're here. I thought I'd better warn you, though, just in case. I leaned to her, ready to repeat the entire episode. That's interesting, I said, because something did bang my door open last night. She studied me for a moment, disappointed. She didn't believe me. I didn't press the point, but I took note. Why did the door-thumping ghost choose his return on the night I arrived? I believe that with the communication I'd been having with Dean, and considering the closer look I was taking at death versus the continuation of life, the farmhouse ghost simply found me approachable. And I wonder if people don't routinely have things happen that are caused by entities from the other side trying to make themselves known. But being so mired down in a material world, most people aren't receptive to the presence of spirits. I also wonder why the ghost always crashed into that particular door. What held him to that place? I wish I'd had time to get to know more about the farmhouse, but my assistant was to pick up Anne-Marie at the airport, then come for me. They were due any minute, and I had a workshop to run. That middle-of-the-night experience will always stay with me, though. I find myself thinking about it often, wishing that I could fathom its mystery. As I debated about what to include in this book, I made the decision to share with you the story of the ghost at the Concord farmhouse. Not that I think Dean was involved in that episode, but to share with you the possibility that once we open up to the spirit world, we will begin to experience things we might not have experienced otherwise. Perhaps spirits look for those who will acknowledge their existence. Perhaps we simply become more sensitive to their presence. You've been listening to Dear Dean, Love, Mom, told by its author Esther Luttrell and brought to you by The Voice of Helona in association with Mojave Beach Productions. The Voice of Helona theme was composed and performed by David Randa of Feslian Studios. Patrick McGrenahan produced. This production was recorded by Dean Fairweather. Funding for Dear Dean, Love, Mom was made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of all aspects of forgiveness in families, communities, businesses, and personal relationships. Visit their website at ForgivenessFoundationInternational.com. This is Jeff Evans, inviting you to soar on the wings of imagination to Mojave Beach Productions' World of Audio Entertainment. Mojave Beach Productions. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, Take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million.